Philippians chapter 2. Great to hear the wonderful sound of people enjoying friendships together. It's uh, one of the aspects of taking a break as we get to catch up a little bit, have some time together. Always hard to get back together, though. But if you could be opening your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, uh, please raise your hand and someone will get you one. Uh, the best thing is to have a Bible right in front of you and follow along. We will project the verse on the screen, and I've actually debated the, whether that's a good thing to do or not, just because I think it can tempt us to be lazy maybe and not open the Bibles up, and getting to know the Bible is a wonderful blessing. But also we want to be sensitive to our guests. Uh, for some folks, you are not used to opening your Bible or you don't have a Bible, and that's fine. So we want to be sensitive to you and allow you to be able to just follow along as well uh, as you learn from God's Word. Well, it's good to be back with you, and if you are a guest with us, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm uh, the pastor here. Last week, we got to hear from our good friend Bauer Evans, who pastors a sister church in Franklin, Mass., and from what I heard, uh, he did a great job bringing truth from the book of Jude, uh, the truth about doubt and learning to uh, be merciful to those who doubt, as Jude talks about. Uh, he is a dear friend, and, and he uh, embodies in many ways the blessing of a partnership in the gospel. We are a church, uh, and we, we believe as a church that every church is responsible to govern itself according to the Scriptures, according to the, the structure of the Scripture, under the headship of Christ Himself, but that churches aren't supposed to be independent. We need other churches. We need other believers. We need the broader body of Christ, and we need, in particular, a particular body of Christ to associate with, and so we are part of a group called Sovereign Grace Ministries, and our friend Bauer is one of the pastors in Sovereign Grace, and uh, as many of you know, I recently was uh, nominated to be on the board of Sovereign Grace Ministries, which was a total surprise for me. I truly mean that, a total surprise. Uh, and it is my uh, hope, uh, and I covet your prayers for this, that I can serve this family of churches as we move into the future. I'm aware of God's grace uh, here, and really I would not have said yes. Uh, and talking to our leaders here, they would not have said yes either. My wife would not have said yes if we weren't aware of the grace of God in King Grace Church. And we're in a season where we're watching God work watching God add leaders. Um, our affirmation process for Jeff Havisto is about two-thirds of the way through, so about one-third of you, if you're members, I haven't heard from you. I have to hear from you uh, for, about your affirming Jeff as we trust the Lord, um, so if you can get to me, but uh, it looks like the Lord will confirm through the affirmation of our church uh, his ordination, which we hope, Lord willing, will be April 14th. That's the Sunday after Easter, if I'm correct. If I'm not, please let me know. <laughs> but we are planning to uh, ordain Jeff, Lord willing, given our process completes that day. And so we'll dedicate that Sunday to, uh, to that in worship. I'll talk about eldership from the scriptures, and we'll have a wonderful time. Uh, and just, I'm just grateful for the grace of God and uh, working in Jeff's life. I, I have seen um, God just build this man and, and equip him and, and give gifts so that he could serve us and 
uh, just so grateful and grateful for the other leaders that we have as well, and just the help uh, and the season we're in that allows me to be able to serve and dedicate probably only about 10% of my time to uh, serving the board. So please pray as we move forward, trusting God. And if you have any questions, please ask me. Well, one of the ways, really one of the ways, probably the, one of the most significant ways that God works in our lives, that, that God grants grace is through His Word. God is a God who speaks and creates life. And our success as a church is grounded on His grace, but what the most important means of that grace is the Holy Spirit-empowered teaching and hearing and responding to the Word of God. The Word of God is what brings life to us. So our, our life, our future, comes from this Word. And so we are a church committed to the Word of God and preaching through and learning from and having God speak to us and change us. And so every, every Sunday that we get together and we get to hear the Word sung, we get to hear the Word shared, we get to hear the Word preached, uh, is, a, is a holy time because God Himself is speaking. So let's pray right now with that in mind, and ask the Lord to speak to us through Philippians chapter 2. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life that it brings, Lord. Your word is living and active. You are the living God, and you work through your word, and, and we just thank you. Lord, we need you. We need you in every way. We need you to change our minds and our hearts and our lives and, and to lead us in your gracious ways. We need to learn to live by grace and not for another gospel. We need all these things and more, and you are fully able to grant these things. And you do that as your word is preached and heard in the power of your spirit. So come, Holy Spirit, be with us. Speak to us through Philippians chapter 2. Change our lives. Teach us about Jesus. Teach us about grace and the gospel and life in you. And send us out from this place freshly renewed in this glorious gospel of grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2 together, verses 1 through 4. Paul is speaking to his dear friends in Philippi. He is addressing uh, their concerns for him in prison, but also his concerns for their struggles, to some degree at least, with disunity. And so he's bringing the truth of the gospel. He's calling them to live worthy of the gospel, to live in the truth of the gospel, uh, and he's applying these truths to them. And he continues to do that here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And he says here, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same Love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 4 title of the message today is Selfish. Paul is addressing his topic here, the topic of selfishness. When I was 21 years old, I had known the Lord about four years. Uh, I was a senior or just a recent graduate of college, and I had seen the Lord do lots of things in my life. He had, he had uh, rescued me from my life of, of 
selfishness and self-will and sin and, uh, and brought me into faith in Christ and, and done a lot of good stuff in my life. And I actually thought I was a really good guy at that point uh, as a 21-year-old, having seen all this change in my life, uh, knowing the, the difference from when I was younger. I just thought I was a pretty good guy. I was a pretty mature Christian young man. And then I got married. (laughs) And it was nothing to do with my wife, actually. But I saw through our relationship just how selfish I was. And it it came out in lots of ways. Uh, And Peg was very gracious and patient with me. But I just saw how selfish I was, how much I just wanted my own way and and my own timing. And and there were just lots of things. One of the ways that I saw how selfish I was was how selfish I was with my words. And guys, you know what I'm talking about. When I came home from work, I was done talking. I had spent all my words that day at work. And, And for my wife to want to talk to me was just asking too much, please. I'd just like some quiet and then that's it. And that was just selfish, and, and, and it, I realized that. It was just unreasonable for me to come home and be like, I'm done talking. Uh, I don't care if you're my wife. I'm, I'm finished. And I just saw my selfishness. Now, there were many other ways as well. I just saw how selfish I was. And then over time, it, it, I seemed to do, start to do a little better, and then it got worse. We had kids. <laughs> First one, then two, then three, and then four. And now my selfishness was fully exposed because not only did I have a a wonderful wife who merely just wanted to have a relationship with me, but I had four children as well, four gremlins running around who wanted time with daddy, who needed help, who needed diapers changed and burp rags taken care of and stuff like that and just wanted to be with her dad. and, And I saw my selfishness at another level. This deep-seated selfishness was exposed by very simple duties of being a husband and father. Now, you don't have to be a husband or father, actually, to have the same experience. I would say that it merely takes getting to know somebody. It merely takes getting close to somebody to have your selfishness exposed. It merely takes having a friendship that's beyond an acquaintance to have your selfishness exposed. And certainly to be in a local church is to be in a place where that, that test, that trial will, will be on you. They'll, you will be pressed and your selfishness will be exposed. Well, that's what was going on in Philippi. The Philippians were experiencing the reality of relationships. They were experiencing the, the reality of being close to others and what it produces. And what it was producing was it was exposing selfishness. It is inevitable. It is inevitable for our selfishness to be exposed. And so maybe when you saw the picture of the title of the message and it shows a circle around a person and the word selfish question mark, you thought, hey, I know who this is for. Somebody else I know that needs to hear this message. No, it's you and it's me. All of us struggle with selfishness. Now, there's good news here in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. There's wonderful news that there is a rescue for us. Paul is bringing this this counsel, this truth here in verses 1 through 4, because he is on a rescue mission. 
for the Philippians. He's on a rescue mission with the power of the gospel to come into the lives of the Philippians and to rescue them from selfishness. There is an answer for us. There's an answer for me. There's an answer for you. And it's found in the truth of this passage. Just to maybe sum that truth up, it's this, that the blessings of the gospel grant us power to live unselfishly. The blessings of the gospel grant us power to live unselfishly. That's good news. That's good news for us this morning. So let's just look through this passage and let's address those things. First, I just want to look at the power, the blessings of the gospel and the power that they bring to live unselfishly. Then we'll talk about the attitudes and the actions that flow from that. So verse 1, Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, there are five things that Paul is talking about here. There are five qualities that he is mentioning here. And, and what he does as he seeks to address the Philippians, he doesn't tell them, he just doesn't jump into verses 2 through 4 and say, guys, selfishness is just ugly, stop it. You know better. Move on. Just, just do it. Stop being unselfish. He, he doesn't do that because Paul understands and God understands it just doesn't work that way. For a matter of fact, if you tell someone just to do something, the, the impulse will be to do just the opposite. That's how we work. So Paul understands that in order for them to have victory over selfishness, they need power. They need real power. They need the power of the gospel of grace. You know what? God's never thought otherwise for his people. He has never related to his people thinking, just do it. He has always expected that we would be desperately dependent on grace, on his work in our lives. You can survey the, the history of God's work dealings with people, and you will see that from Adam right through to the end. Grace was always the ground of our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And so Paul knows that, so here he grounds us in grace. He grounds us in these five, really four experiences of grace. There are four, five things mentioned. The last two really kind of go together, so we can call them four. And Paul grounds the Philippians in these four experiences that they have that they know. He knows they've had these four experiences, and he knows that these experiences are of grace, and they, they are common, and they are the power for them to live differently. The first one, he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ. If there's any encouragement in Christ. Paul is saying, and actually all these qualities, all, all four of them, are not qualities in the Philippians. These are not things that the Philippians are to feel and do merely. These are all things that they have experienced in God. These are all things from God. These are all gifts to the Philippians that they have experienced. First is any encouragement in Christ. Any encouragement. Also translated consolation. This is basically Paul speaking of the of the joy, the comfort, the peace, the strengthening that comes in Christ. It's the experience of the blessings of Christ. The encouragement in Christ is, is, is what they have received, how they have been blessed and strengthened and changed, how they have experienced the wonders of the gospel. 
And folks, we need to be strengthened in Christ. We need encouragement in Christ. We need to ground ourselves in the encouragement in Christ. If you are aware that you need to change in your life, if you are aware that you need to put away selfishness, the answer comes from grounding yourself in the encouragement that is in Christ, the blessings that you have in Christ. Jesus comes as our all in all. He comes to rescue us from our sin. He alone is our great champion. He came. He lived the righteous life that we all know we ought to live. He lived it perfectly. He fulfilled all righteousness. He went to the cross. He died for the sins of his people. He died for your sins. If you put your faith in him, your sins are paid for by Christ. He died for your sins. He presented his righteousness to the Father, and the Father said, yes, I accept. Sins are paid for. Your righteous life received on behalf of your people. He is our great champion. He won victory over sin and death. He lived this perfect life that in, in which we are righteous before God. He obeyed God. He satisfied perfect divine justice. He was raised on the third day, victorious over sin and death. And if you belong to him through faith, simply through faith, his death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. You are forgiven. You are dead to your sins. You are alive. You are forever alive in him, in his resurrection. Those are words of comfort and encouragement. And they touch our lives so that we experience this encouragement in Christ to know I'm forgiven, to know I'm counted righteous. To know that I belong to Jesus. He is mine. I am his. To know that he works out all things for good. To know these things that brings encouragement in our lives. And so Paul points the Philippians to their encouragement in Christ as the grounds for their life. He goes on. And he says, any comfort from love. He goes to the next quality, comfort from love. And, and these all are tied together. If, if any comfort from love, if any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love. Now, this isn't the comfort from the love they feel one for another, as important as that is. This is the comfort of love from God to them. It isn't mere intellectual assent either. It isn't the comfort of the knowledge of love. That's important indeed to know that God loves you mentally is the beginning point. But there's more to it. He's not just speaking of the idea that you're loved. He's speaking of the experience that you're loved. The comfort that comes from knowing that you're loved. And to be a believer is to have experienced that and to continue to experience that. Now it varies from time to time. We can't control how much we feel loved. We have to ground ourselves on the objective reality that Christ dying for our sins and rising again for our new life is a, is a statement that stands firm and objectively that God loves us. So we stand on that but we are to experience it as well. How, you might ask? How do I know that's true? Well, look in Scripture. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Paul is instructing the, the, the Romans and really all of us, the Lord through him, all of us, and he talks about, uh, he's talking about trials, he's talking about grace, talking about trials, and he says this in verse 5 at the end, God's love has been poured 
into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is, this is not the objective, mere objective truth. This is not mental assent saying, yeah, this is true. This is an experience of the Holy Spirit pouring love into our hearts. So there is a, an experience that has gone on that Paul can point to. And that's what he's doing in Philippians 2. He's pointing to this experience. Guys, you've, you've, if you've had any of these things, and they know what those things are, and if you are a believer, you know it as well. Now sometimes when this, when this is said, we think, well, I don't know. Have I felt it enough? And, and I don't think that's where you need to go. How much have I felt? But you have, if you're a believer, have experienced that truth. And you are to continue to experience. The the subjective aspect of Christianity is not to be denied. It's important that we, as we ground ourselves on the objective truths, that we don't think, well, that's the entirety of it. The the experiential reality is, is a normal part of Christianity, to feel the Lord's love. Yes, it's subjective. It's hard to explain, but there is to be an experience. I feel his love. I know he loves me. The Spirit of God has touched my life. Ephesians 3, Paul talks about this love too, that we are to ground ourselves. We're to be rooted and grounded in love and have strength. He prays for them to have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Experiencing this love, this infinitely great love, is being filled with the fullness of God. God's an infinite, glorious being. To know this love, to have it touch your hearts, is to experience the infinite. God has loved us with an everlasting love. And in his loving kindness, he's drawn us. He's pursued you. If you're a believer, he's pursued you in his great love. He loved you before time began. He set his sights on you. And he loved you not because you're particularly lovable, but because he is merciful and loving and compassionate. His love is rooted in his character, not yours. That's a good thing. And he set his sights on you before time. And he said, I'm going to rescue this one. I'm going to chase them down. I'm going to orchestrate things. I'm going to work. I'm going to expose them to the gospel. And, the, and, and I, through the Spirit, I'm going to regenerate this one and make them my own. And they're going to be cleansed and forgiven and accepted. And then I get to have them with me forever. If you read Scripture, you'll see the love the love of the Father for the Son, the Son for the Father, the triune love, we are brought into that same love, the wonder of the gospel in in God giving his only Son for us is that God loves us as he loves his Son. Christ loves us as he loves the Father. That is the measure of the love God has for you. That is mind-blowing that we are brought into this relationship in this great love. He loves you. Do you know it? He loves you. He loves you greatly. He loves you deeply. And you are to know comfort in that love. It's to fill your heart up. It's to fill your life up. It's to propel you forward. It's your only hope to put away selfishness and live unselfishly. 
Paul goes on, he talks about the participation or fellowship in the Spirit. And this word is used throughout Philippians, often translated fellowship. It's this idea of this solid relational, deep relational connection, this friendship. And he speaks of the the friendship among the believers in Philippi, but here he's speaking of this friendship with the Spirit, this participation in the Spirit, this fellowship in the Spirit. And he's pointing the Philippians to say, guys, if you have had any of this, so it's expected that they've had an experience of the Holy Spirit together. And, and, And if you are a believer, you have experienced the Holy Spirit. You know God himself. He lives in you. And by the way, if you're yet to be a believer, these things are all for you if you just simply turn from self and sin and say, I don't want anything to do with that way of life. I want Christ. It's all yours. So come and receive it and enjoy all that you can have in Christ. This participation in the Holy Spirit. Think about this. God is an eternal, infinite, all-glorious being. God is, is beyond comprehension. Do you guys, you know the story perhaps of, of the angels that worship before the throne? These mighty angels, they're, they're just amazing angels, these colossal angels, uh, and they are just glorious angels, glorious servants of the Lord and his people. And they are before the throne, and, and they worship day and night, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, and his light, the glory of God, shines. And you cannot look in that light because he's so glorious. To be truly in his presence would incinerate us. And yet, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, lives in you and in me. And this holy God dwells among us. That's amazing. And Paul roots the Philippians in that corporate and individual experience. He says, guys, you experience fellowship with God. You know his life in you. You've experienced the the new birth. You've experienced the the ability to to have your eyes open to perceive God. You've experienced the wonderful blessing to read this Bible and hear God through it. You've experienced love in your hearts one for another. You've seen him at work. You've seen, you've seen gifts operate in and through your life. You've seen, you've seen godliness grow in you, faith, love, joy, peace. You've seen miracles. You've seen all these things. You've had fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Philippians. To have a friendship with God is the, really the most amazing thing about any of us. We are friends with God. We have this participation in the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on, and he talks about the, any affection and sympathy. And these two words go together, really. And they speak not of affection and sympathy, one for another, but ultimately of God's affection and sympathy. So these words, the way that they're phrased, are, are most commonly used to speak of God's affection and sympathy. All these things are intended to be understood as coming from God. Affection and sympathy, I like the King James, it says bowels and mercies, that's not very appealing, uh, but the idea is that, that it, it comes, these affections, the, the, the literal word is guts, um, that there's this deep, heartfelt gut, gut affection God has for you. And it goes with mercy, that God, when he sees you, he's merciful. When he looks at you, he is merciful. He thinks of, how can I help this one? 
How can I work in their life? How can I be merciful? How can I save them from their sin and guide them and teach them? How can, how can I lead them? It's the same word when Jesus looked on the crowds that were harassed and helpless. He had compassion on them. It's God's deep-seated mercy for his people. He feels deeply about you. He feels very deeply about you. When he looks at you, he feels a deep, heartfelt compassion. He sees you in your hardship. He sees you in your challenges. He wants to help you. He's committed to help you. Now, some of us in our trials think, well, I don't know about that. This doesn't feel very merciful to me. The Scripture is very clear that he's in control of all those things. And though it may be hard and though it may be an evil thing for the moment, in his fatherly wisdom and in his solid commitment to you, that's established by the death and resurrection of Christ, he works all things for your good. He works those trials, as painful as they are, those situations, those temptations, as hard as they might be, ultimately to work good in your life. He has this heartfelt compassion for you that operates in all of your life, whether there be trials or whether there be times of ease. That's how he feels about you. And so Paul is grounding the Philippians in this, these experiences, these four qualities He's grounding them. He's bringing them back to them. And do you notice what he says? He says, if, if any, any, any. Actually, he says, uh, some translations have it a little more literal. He says after, before each quality, if any of this, if any of this, if any, if any. Why does he say that? Why does Paul say if any over and over again? Because Paul understands that these qualities are so amazing, so powerful, so life-changing so effective to transform us that all you need is just a little bit. He doesn't say if lots. He doesn't say if some. He says if any. Just a little bit of knowing encouragement in Christ. Just a little bit of comfort from his love. Just a little bit of participation in the spirit. Just a little bit of his affection and sympathy makes all the difference in how you live with others and how you relate to others. That's what Paul is teaching us. The power to live unselfishly comes from the blessings of the gospel, if any. How much money would it take for you to have for you to be ridiculously generous to others? Bill Gates, worth $56 billion. Uh, that's a lot of money. It would take your average person saving every dime they earned a million years to make that much money. Um, it's enough money to buy all the homes from Haverhill all the way up to Manchester, New Hampshire, all of them basically, and own all of them. He's $56 billion. He gives twenty. $8 billion to charity. That's, that's amazing, isn't it? Um, 28, that's half, right? $28 billion to, to charity. Um, and he does some wonderful things. And, and, and so he has a lot. He can give a lot. How much would you want, how much would you have to do some things like that? Imagine if you had $28 billion. Uh, I, 
I'm sorry, I'm engineer, kind of math geek a little bit, so I was doing all these calculations. That's enough money to plant a church in every major town and city in the whole world. That's what I'd do with the money. How much money do you need to be extravagantly gracious to others? The reality is you have more than $56 billion. You have Christ. And all the blessings that Christ has earned are your blessings forever. You have, we have more than enough to be gracious with others, more than enough to live unselfishly. And so Paul calls us here to live out this life in our attitudes and actions. So he continues. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He, he knows these guys. He is dear friends with them. So he's asking them, he's saying, complete my joy. But he's not saying, guys, it's all about making me happy. That's not the point. He's just saying, guys, this is good. This is important. I, I so want you to live this way. I so want you to, to understand this. Complete my joy. By walking this out, being of the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And he repeats over and over again. He basically, uh, actually where it says full accord, the, the, that can be translated literally to mean same soul, together soul, or same soul. So, so Paul's saying, guys, be of the same mind, the same heart, the same soul. Be so affected by the blessings of the gospel that you relate to each other as if you have the same mind, the same heart, the same soul. To be that unified. And that's the power of the gospel. And it's amazing because think of the reality. You, it, only takes, it only takes two people to have a disagreement. Just put two people together and they're, they're going to have two different ideas about things. They're going to have two different opinions, two different preferences, two different feelings about what's important. And Paul's calling not just two, but a whole church. And God's calling all of us to be same-minded, same-souled, same-hearted. And that only happens when we get the mind and the heart and the soul of Christ. That's one of the wonders of the gospel. When we understand God's love for us, when we come to faith in Christ, he does a miracle. The Spirit of God comes and dwells in us and, and begins to change our minds, how we think about things. Begins to change, change our hearts, what we, what we desire, what we want. Begins to change our soul, what, what our life is about, how we feel about things, what we live in. He changes us and he brings us to have the same heart, same mind, same soul as he does. And that's how unity happens. That's how we get the same heart, soul, and mind. Now, it doesn't mean that you agree on everything, though. And I, for one, am very glad about that. Because uh, it doesn't mean that we're all going to like vanilla ice cream. And it doesn't mean that I have to ever like country music. <laughs> no, one, no uh, if you like country music, I'm sorry. I like some of it. After a while, it gets a little bit monotonous. I guess the other music does too, but um, you can talk to me later about music. I, I know we, it goes always with that. But anyhow, that's not what it means. It just means that your preferences, whatever they might be, your particular orientations, whatever they might be, are overwhelmed by your life in Christ, are overwhelmed by having the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ and the soul of Christ. They're overwhelmed. It, 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 it's to change us. 
to change how we think, how we live. We are to have the same mind. We are to be brought together in unity. We are to share the same minds. It's interesting. I was reading about twins, actually. Twins can share the same mind at times uh, if you're an identical twin. Anyone here an identical twin? A couple of you. Excellent. Have you guys, I've read about this, ever had the experience where you just are really in sync with your your twin? You know what they're thinking. You know what they're feeling. Um, And that's part of what happens with the Lord. Uh, It's even more than that. I mean, I don't know if the picture helps you, but it's like we're Siamese twins in a sense, that we share the same mind, the same heart, and, and, and the same soul. We are brought together. God takes us and brings us together and, and, and creates unity in our lives. This is the work of the gospel in us. This is what we're called to in our attitude. And it's an opportunity for us to ask ourselves, am I of the same mind and heart and soul with my brothers and sisters here at King of Grace Church? Now, I believe the answer for that is overwhelmingly yes, because I see it. But are there any individuals or groups here that when you think about them, you say, no, there's a difference here. Now, there might be legitimate reasons for that. Um, But could it be that the work of the gospel, the work of changing your mind and your heart and your soul has to progress further, that you have to change, that you have your own preferences, you have your own mind about things, and you're refusing to give that up. That's what you live by, what you want, how you see things. The gospel of Christ, the the life of Christ, the purposes of Christ are not at the center, but something else is, and that is why you don't feel that unity, that you don't experience that unity with that brother or sister. The gospel comes and changes us so that our attitudes become one together. Our attitude towards one another is one of unity in the power of the gospel. Again, it doesn't make us that we have to be the same. It's not, not being unanimous, uh, not being the same in every way, but it's being united at a significant level. God loves diversity. And actually, his design in the church is to take diversity, take many gifts and many different types of people and make them one substantially with all their differences. That's, that's what beauty is, is it not? Beauty is, is probably a lot of things, but beauty is taking diversity of colors, diversity of ideas, diversity of words, and bringing them together under some unity. That's what makes things beautiful, is it not? Diversity unified. That is to be the beauty of the church. That is to be the difference in living unselfishly. Finally, Paul talks about actions here. He tells the Philippians, in light of what you've experienced in the blessings of the gospel, you are to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. When you have been affected by the gospel, you are to change in your orientation. And you are not to live for yourself. You're not to live for your own preferences. You're not to do anything from rivalry or conceit. Trying to get the upper hand. Trying to have it your way. Trying to live pridefully. You're to count others 
more significant than yourselves. Now, I had a friend of mine who's, I remember talking with him about this verse. He struggled with it, and he was like, what do you mean? Like, am I just supposed to pretend that that person's more important or better than me in something? I mean, does this mean like on the basketball court, I've got to pretend that they're the superstar and I'm, I'm no good? No, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean false humility. It doesn't mean acting like a pool shark who's ready to snooker the next guy after that first game. You're, you're not... You're not pretending something that isn't. It's how you regard them. It's it's regarding their interests, regarding their lives as more important than your own. It's to say, you know what? What I want isn't the number one thing here. I want to consider them. I want to lift them up. And then Paul says, do not... uh, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So you're no longer just to have your own interest driving the train. You are caught up in Christ. Your life is in him. And when you begin to know his love for you and you begin to experience the power and the blessings of the gospel, it changes you and you start to have an orientation to others. You start to recognize, you know what, this isn't about me. This is about Christ. And Christ has called me to be in a relationship with others. And they have preferences and interests and gifts that I need to equally consider right alongside my own. I have, I, I, it would be foolish, it would be, it would be contrary to the gospel for me to, to put my preferences first. We're to have those preferences overwhelmed by the preferences of Christ. The grace of Christ. The purposes of Christ. Now that's a, that's a, a tall order. Because if you're like me, your day is full of one personal interest after another going through your mind. If you're like me, it, 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 you, are, you are there and you just have a parade marching down the street of your mind. And in that parade are things that you are interested in. And, and for me, it's like there's a big float. It's a cheeseburger float that comes down the street, and it's what I'm going to have for lunch. Cheeseburger and fries, that's my interest. That's the first float. Then behind it is the marching band, and the marching band is singing about my next fishing trip and what I'm going to do in the fishing trip. And then after that is is a a whole parade of of new cars and trucks because we need a new car, and I I wonder which one it is that I should buy. And that's my life, a parade like that. Am, Am I crazy, or is it like this for you? I don't know. I'm crazy, yeah. (laughs) It's a parade that just marches through my mind, and I live my day that way. But when the gospel changes us, when Christ starts to change what we think about, what we love, what what we desire, how we feel, it's not just my parade anymore. Now, he's not saying don't think about cheeseburgers. But what he's saying is, there's other parades marching down the street. And you need to look at those other parades. You need to have these other parades march in parallel with yours. And actually, all the parades need to come under Jesus as the grand leader of it. And so what could be just horrible noise and problems in Christ gets unified as we submit those things to him. And now we are to look not only to our own parade, but to the parade of others, to the interest of others. And only the power of the gospel brings that change. The band could come up as we close. Have you experienced the power of the gospel to change you?
to live unselfishly? Have you experienced the power of the gospel to give you new affections for Christ? New mindset, new desires. Have you seen this gradual change changing you so that you don't live selfishly? That you can actually stop the parade and enjoy someone else's parade or learn to do it together and you can do that with joy? Is that your experience? I I believe it is if you're a believer and it is to grow more and more. I believe we are actually to experience being caught up in what the Lord is doing corporately. Have you ever been on a team and experienced that? Have you ever been on a team where, where the goals of the team have overwhelmed your personal preferences? I can remember a number of experiences of that. My high school football team, as we were trying to be one of the best teams in the state, it just, it, there was just something that brought us together. There was this unity. I, our, in college, our Christian ministry we were a part of, and as we sought to reach you know, uh, UMass Amherst, there was this unity. I see it in King of Grace Church. I see the Lord doing things. There's this unity around the cause of Christ, around, around the wonder of living in the gospel of grace together and grounding ourselves there, not in our works, not in what we can do or can't do, but what Christ has done, our, our sufficiency, grounding ourselves together. It's bringing us together. And then to hear him say, now go and tell others. Go and love others. Grow together and go. That grace is changing us. And, and, and that, all that experience, all those blessings and, and, the, and the call of the gospel is to catch us up in it so we forget about the particulars. So in closing, I want to ask a couple things. Are you so soaking in the gospel of grace that you find that your selfish particular preferences are not all that important? What are those preferences that maybe have exerted themselves too highly? Is there something you want that has caused disunity? It could be something trivial, and and believe me, it only takes little things. It could be that you want the blue chairs at the back and the red chairs at the front. It could also be that there's an important doctrinal emphasis that we need to have, but, but, but isn't quite as prominent as you would like to see it. Certainly, Christ and the gospel of grace must be preeminent, and that is a legitimate thing to insist on. But maybe there's a secondary thing. Maybe it's the practice of the gifts, or particular style, or a secondary doctrine of truth. Maybe you'd like it to be, there to be more about election or something like that. Those are important things. Whatever it might be, is there something in your life that's exerting too much influence on you and has caused you to not feel and be unified and has caused you not to be able to put away selfishness and live for God's glory in unity? As we close and as we sing, I just want you to think about that. And I'd like you to just think about one thing. You don't have to think about the three things. I'm sure we could all make a list. But is there one thing, one preference, or is there one individual that has been a challenge for you? And you realize, I need to put away my preferences and put Christ first and that person above myself. Let's do that as we sing and as we close.